Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning, and uh, thank you for bringing the church into this YMCA gymnasium. And if I've never had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie, and it's my absolute privilege to be one of the pastors here at Crosspoint. Uh, Miss being with you last week as our family was uh, traveling, but uh, Eric did a great job. Got to listen to the message on our drive home, and so thankful for his willingness to preach last week and excited to get back into uh, the book of Acts with you guys this morning in this series called Witnesses. And we've been looking at and examining how the church has functioned down through through the years, through the centuries, how Jesus is at work building his church, that the storyline of the scriptures is not that Jesus did his thing and went up into the heavens and now it's kind of up to us, but rather Jesus is still at work, he's still building his church, he's still leading his church, and he has invited us and he is using us and he's given us the great privilege to be the church, all right, following after him and that he might work in and through us. And so we've been looking at this idea of What does it look like for us? We get to witness Jesus building his church, and at the same time, we get to bear witness to the reality of Jesus. We get to tell other people about the hope that we found, about the grace, the forgiveness that we've experienced, that apart from the grace of God, like we would just be stuck. We're dead in our sins and trespasses, and we get to tell people the glorious good news of how Jesus has rescued us. And so if you're here as a Christian this morning, that's your story and that's your invitation. And if you're here this morning as somebody that's sort of like, hey, I don't know what I believe, and uh, I got lots of questions. We're so glad that you're here, and our hope is that this time together through the word that's proclaimed, the word that is preached, the songs that are sung, through you seeing other people participate in communion, that all of that would bear witness to the reality of Jesus and that you might leave today with a clear understanding of what it is that the church believes, teaches, what it might look like to actually follow Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 22. So I'd encourage you, we make our way through passages of scripture through the Bible, all right? And so it's helpful to have that in front of you. So if you brought a Bible, turn there. If you didn't, on the back tables, there's some paperback Bibles. You can get up at any point, get one of those. You can find it, uh, the passage starting on page 1031. Or another option is if you get your phone out, go to cpwp.life. It's kind of our central hub. Anything that we talk about, ways to get connected is there. If you swipe over the second card, you see it says message notes. Anything that's up on the screen will be there, including the text to follow along. There's a place where you can take notes. You can, to remind yourself of what you wrote down, you can email them to yourself afterwards. But I want to go ahead and read this. We get this idea of what does it look like, what we're going to be examining this morning, is to be a courageous Witness. We see the Apostle Paul where we find the story is the Apostle Paul has been out on these missionary journeys bearing witness to the reality of Jesus and he's returned now. He finds himself back in Jerusalem and we'll look at the end of chapter 21 in a moment as well <clears throat> because there's a context for these words that he speaks. But we, there's this address that Paul is addressing a, a crowd and it's a crowd that is turned against him. It is a crowd that is hostile. It's not a crowd that just sort of, hey, they, they didn't actually, you know, they didn't like his Instagram post or they made a nasty comment on his blog. It's, it's way more intense than that, right? It's people that literally are on the verge of wanting to kill the apostle Paul and he gets up and he speaks these words. So as I read this, would you go ahead and stand as I read God's word this morning? Acts 22 Look at the first 22 verses. It says this, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus and Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. 
From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were, who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Verse 6, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, here's Paul's telling his conversion story. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who's speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by, the hand by those who were with me, and I came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In verse 22, up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So what I want to examine with you all this morning, as we look at this invitation that we have to bear witness to the reality of Jesus, one of the things that it's going to take, there's a lot of different things we've been learning in this book, but one of the key things in this is how do we actually overcome probably the fear, the trepidation, the nervousness that, that we feel when we think about the idea of bearing witness, all right? Like, it might sound good in theory, it might sound good while you're sitting here in a church service, and like, yep, and even might even have people in mind, you're like, I need to share with them the good news of the gospel, and yet when we find ourselves in moments to have that opportunity, we can sometimes shy away, or at least I know that I can. I can miss out on opportunities. I feel like in many ways too that what's happening here like from this stage like this might even be easier than sitting down one-on-one right because most of the time you guys don't ask me questions back in the moment all right maybe we'll try that experiment someday but right now that's not usually how it goes but when you're sitting down with coffee over a meal or somebody sitting in your living room or wherever you happen to be like there's interaction what if they ask a question and you don't know the you know you don't have a good response all these things can run through our minds and what I want to think through this morning is what does a courageous witness look like in our cultural moment. We're gonna see some things about what courage looked like for the Apostle Paul in his cultural moment, in his context, and there are some similarities, but then there are also things that are unique to our time and our place, and so what would it look like for you and I to have courage, if you're a follower of Jesus, to have courage to bear witness in this moment, in this time, in this place, in 2019, living in Central Florida, with all the things that are happening around us? How can we be courageous? 
And I think sometimes there's this misunderstanding. When we think courage, we think, okay, we gotta get rid of all fear, all right? This, I've maybe used this illustration before, but it's the thing that comes to mind whenever we think about courage, at least when I think about it, and being a child of the 90s, some of you will remember this, all right? So some of you will definitely get this. There were these products that were out, all right, in the 90s, all right? So when I was in high school, uh, this whole no fear campaign, all right? Some of you remember this? Come on, identify yourself, late 30s, 40s, there we go. Okay, so, and in this particular thing, people began wearing all sorts of shirts and t-shirts and hats and things, and it kind of had this bravado, a bit of this like, yeah, I got no fear. And so you'd see people walking around, and they, they might not have been able to lift a five-pound you know, weight, but they had like this, I'm going to do it. And so like one shirt said this, you'll never steal second with your foot on first, no fear, right? Like, yeah, man, that's good, right? And so sort of like just get rid of all fear. Maybe another one. Some of you are like, if you're still wearing this, my apologies. But anyway, I don't come here to play, I come here to win, no fear, right? They had another one that was like second place is the first loser, like all kinds of things, right? Um, this one, I don't know, at some point, I don't remember ever seeing this shirt, but I found this one online, so maybe it's got to be real if it was on the internet, right? Um, and it said this. I'm like, man, this, they ratcheted up the intensity here. It says, I'm not scared. I'm not afraid. I'm tough. I'm an animal, and I will eat you if I have to. I'm like, what, what in the world is happening? Just a level of intensity. Like, I didn't know we were going to go there. But there is this sense of like, all right, be courageous, be bold, have this bravado, get rid of all fear. But the reality is, no, fear is a present reality. And it's an emotion that, for one, that the Lord has given to us. We're not to just ignore it. Like, it's there for a reason. Courage is actually, how do we move forward despite our fears? And so what I want us to look at together this morning is a few aspects that we see in this story. The Apostle Paul begins to tell his story. He begins to proclaim the good news of Jesus. He begins to tell his story about how God has been at work. And I think there's some things that we learn in here about what it looks like to not ignore fear, but to have it in its proper place. And to say, I can have a boldness, I can, I can have a courageous witness. And I think the first thing that we see is we look, we'll kind of tie up some, kind of look at some things in the first 16 verses about this first idea is that you and I have to be people that, for one, that we would actually know our need, that we would recognize, as Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit. It's easy sometimes to think like, well, no, I, I'm not poor in spirit. I'm not impoverished spiritually. I'm kind of middle class, and, and so there's people that are worse than me, and there's some that are better, but I'm just kind of middle, middle of the road. But the storyline of the scriptures is we are people in great need, because apart from the work of Jesus, the scriptures tell us that we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. And so dead people are very, very needy. Dead people can't do anything for themselves. And apart from Christ, that's our condition. If you're here this morning, apart from Christ, the, the scriptures are telling you that's your condition. And it's not to make you feel bad, but rather to say, but there's a way that you can be made alive. And so if we're going to be a courageous witness, I think the first thing we need to kind of recapture is a people that we understand that we are in great need. And it's not just it was a need sometime back in the past when we became a Christian and we got moved over into this new life with Christ and suddenly now everything is like we're just skipping through meadows and everything's amazing and everything is glorious and there's no problems. No, no, no. Like we're continually, constantly in need of the grace of God. We don't outgrow that. You didn't get to a spot. I don't get to a spot where like, nope, no, it's, it's cool. Like Jesus, you can go minister to those other people because I got this. Do you and I, do we know our need? And so if we're going to talk about this, one of the things we got to look at for just a moment. So if you had your, have your Bible still, Acts chapter 21, the end of Acts 21 tells, gives us the context 
Because if you're like, well, this is the Apostle Paul, this isn't that big a deal, he's used to giving sermons, he's used to getting up in front of crowds. Yes, that is true, but I want you to understand the crowd that he is speaking to and what preceded this address that we just read in Acts chapter 22. So if we jump back to chapter 21, let me just read here and you'll get the sense. I'll make a couple comments along the way, beginning in verse 27. It says, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him, that's Paul, in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. Now just think about this for a moment. Think about it in the context of here, like a man just showing up, he's like, hey, I'm gonna go to this church service, I'm gonna go worship God, and suddenly the entire congregation, everybody that's there, and it spills out in the city, became stirred up, and they seize you, and they begin to drag you out. And this is what the Apostle Paul is dealing with, all right? So verse 31 says, and as they were seeking to kill him, all right, it's just crazy. So they seized him, the gates are shut. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion, He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So the Romans are having to get involved here. Like, we can't have this sort of riot happening in our city. All right? So they bind him with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Verse 34. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people following, followed, crying out away with him. Think about it. The apostle Paul just shows up, him going to the temple. He's not disrespecting the temple. He understands that it's part of the story that he's been part of that finds its fulfillment in Jesus. He's not down on the temple, any of those things. He goes in, he's there to worship God, to offer up prayers, all of this. And the crowd just gets so stirred up, right? Literally the apostle Paul, all right? I don't know how they carried him. If he's up, like if they're holding up like this, if one guy got him under his arm like a football, I have no idea. But the apostle Paul had to be carried out because the crowd was so incensed, so much intense around getting rid of him. And it tells us, verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? He's surprised at the eloquence of Paul. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? There's a whole historical context here that they've misidentified Paul. And Paul's like, no, no, that's not me. Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Think about that for a moment. An entire group of people want to get rid of Paul. There's hatred, there's this venom, there's just this absolute ugliness that's happening. If that was me, my, my thing would be like, just get me out of here, I'm done with them, shake the dust off my feet, like away, just get me away. I don't want anything to do with those people. Paul's disposition, please, 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 can I address them for a moment? You mean the people that would want to kill you? Yes, please, will you give me the opportunity? He's so captured by the grace of God that he's received that he looks out over this crowd, a crowd that is against him, has great animosity. It's not just indifferent to him, but it's opposed, very hostile. And he, his heart breaks for them. He said, these are my 
brothers. You'll see that in a moment. Like he addresses brothers and fathers. There's this language. Like, hey, we're family. Can we talk here for a moment? <clears throat> and so it says, and when he had give, been given permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, and then so begins his speech. Now, if we're going to have a great boldness, a courageous witness to all of this, one of the things we can learn from the Apostle Paul is he's a man who's dialed into his story. He's willing to tell his story. He's willing to be courageous in examining his story. I think there's a lot of courage that it takes to do some self-examination, not so that we journey inward and find like, hey, the, you know, I'm the hero or I got a journey, you know, find myself. No, no. The reality is we examine our hearts, we examine our motives, we examine everything that's going on. We kind of get beneath the surface, not to terminate on ourselves, but rather so that it might lead us away from ourselves towards where we can actually find hope. And Paul, I think, is a man who spent time thinking through the reality of the gospel that the gospel of Jesus Christ had on his life. He was a man, as we see even in this address, that was willing to recall the most horrific aspects of his story. The times when he presided over the killing, the persecution of Christians, the times when he stood there holding the coats of the men who were throwing rocks at a man named Stephen, seeing him murdered, the first Christian martyr. This was Paul. I imagine the amount of shame he must have felt and the, and the things that he dealt with. Like, I can't believe that was me. And yet, as he would write in the book of 2 Corinthians in this letter, like, Behold, the old is gone. Behold, the new has come. I'm a new creation. And anyone that's in Christ now has this new story. And so Paul would examine his story, not to go down a point of like being depressed, at the same time not to exalt himself, but rather to have this right understanding of how needy he is for the grace of God. And so if we're gonna be courageous in our witness and what people actually need to hear from us is to understand a bit of like our own need, what Jesus has done in our life. And so what Paul does I mean, this is just a bit of his resume. He starts out and he says, all right, brothers and fathers. And again, he's connecting with them. He's like, I care deeply for them. I care deeply for you. Hear the defense that I now make. And beginning in verse three, he just runs through this litany, this list here. It's almost as if him saying, all right, here's my resume. Guys, you know me. You know about my story. And he's like, if there's anybody that had everything kind of going for him. He's like, it was me, and yet it wasn't enough. So he says, I'm a Jew. But not only that, I'm, I've been educated at the feet of Gamaliel. So he, he's like this religious leader. He got to study with this particular person who had a level of strictness and severity about his teachings that the apostle Paul's like, man, I'm not just this kind of like half in, half out, kind of lukewarm sort of thing. Like I'm all in. Like I went to, it's sort of like, I went to the Ivy League of the rabbis, basically. He's like, I have got this on lockdown. I've studied and I'm educated and I've got this. I'm an expert in the law. But he tells his story because he wants them to see, like for one, listen, guys, I'm not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to our heritage at the same time even though I had everything going for me, it wasn't actually enough. He says, I was zealous for God. He says, so much so that I persecuted the way, which is another term, another phrase to talk about the church. Because early on, they didn't know, what, how do you identify this group? Like, are they Jews? Are they not? They believe in Jesus. So it became known as the way, which is a very helpful name, I think, for us to even seek to embrace. Like, we would follow the way of Jesus, that he is our leader, and we're disciples of him. And then he says this, I journeyed toward Damascus. 
because the persecution that Paul had been part of was in and around the city of Jerusalem. And what he's saying is like, hey, that's not enough. The way is spreading to other cities, other locales, other places where it's having influence, where people are meeting Jesus. And so I'm not content to just make sure it doesn't happen here in Jerusalem. I am so committed. I'm so dedicated. Give me some papers that I might take and be able to go arrest those in a place called Damascus. And so at this point, we have to see like Paul's resume is there. He's like, I'm a Jew of the Jews. I mean, in the book of Philippians, you can go read in chapter three, he talks about how he's like Hebrew of Hebrews. Like he's in the right tribe. He's got the right pedigree. He's got all of this. But he's going to showcase for us here in a moment that that wasn't enough. It's possible to be around all the right religious sort of upbringing and still be very lost. And if you're here this morning and you're trying to figure all of this out as Christianity and you think, all right, well, it's about this religious observance and changing and modifying my behavior, you're in the realm of religion. Paul was caught up in religion, but he didn't understand the gospel. And so now he begins to share, though, what happens. And so as he gets on his way, there's this encounter. And we read about this earlier in the book of Acts. And Luke is the one who's writing Acts, and he tells the story of Paul's conversion. And now we get to hear it in Paul's own words some nuances to it, some things that, some, some new angles, some details that emerge. But more than anything, I think it's Paul dialing into like, hey, I can just tell you my story. Sure, he was a sharp, he had a sharp theological mind, all of it, but at the end of the day, he just wanted to tell people about his encounter with Jesus. And have you and I encountered Jesus? And if you have, then you too, because you have the Holy Spirit, you're equipped to tell your story. And you might stumble and you may stammer at times. You might not think you said it all, you know, in the right way. And that's okay. But if we examine our own story enough to say, you know, I'm just, I'm going to tell this. I know my story. And so he encounters the risen Lord. And so verse 6 says, as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And the voice said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. So he's meeting the risen Jesus, the one who was crucified, who rose three days later. He ascended into the heavens. But in this moment, he comes back and he encounters, the, he encounters the man who would become the apostle Paul. And then Paul has this moment where he's just utterly disoriented, all right, and realizes as Jesus is speaking these words, he's starting to connect the dots. I don't think it's all come clear yet, but Jesus says, when you're persecuting other people, you're actually persecuting me. You're persecuting the son of of God. And now those who were with me, verse 9, saw the light but did not understand, and the voice of the one who was speaking to me, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? And I want to ask you, is that our posture here this morning? Paul gets to this point where he's so discombobulated, he's so disoriented, he's so just sort of like, I mean, it literally tells us he fell to the ground, he's like, I don't know what is happening, what shall I do, Lord? He comes to this point of seeing his need. I can't figure this out. Is that our posture? And as the story continues, it tells us that he was actually struck blind for a time. He's led into the city of Damascus where he meets this, this man that he's told to go and see named Ananias, all right? But maybe a way to think about it is Paul is actually blinded in order that he might see. Imagine for a moment his world, this man who's on this mission, who's got this religious zeal, thinks he's got it all figured out. And then he encounters the risen Lord and he starts to realize, oh my goodness, like, I don't actually have this on lockdown. I don't have this figured out. And there's a darkness that it, he's physically experiencing, but it showcases for him the darkness of his spiritual reality. And it's only when he begins to see his need 
that the light of the gospel begins to shine and that he can actually come to this point of belief. And says, the God of our fathers, this is what Ananias speaks to him, appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one. Maybe think about it this way. You and I can feel pretty good about our righteousness as long as we can find somebody else to compare ourselves to that's a little bit worse than us. So they had a little bit worse week than, than you did. Okay, you can look at them and be like, okay, well, I'm not that bad. And so we tend to walk around feeling good about ourselves or we feel a little bit bad about ourselves and there's somebody who's like, man, they, they really seem to have things a bit more figured out than I do. What Ananias is showcasing for Paul, he's like, listen, you've just come up against the God of the universe and there's this mirror now that's being held to you and you're seeing maybe for the first time in your blindness, you're seeing the state of your spiritual condition apart from Christ, that you are dead, you're blind, you're in darkness, it's chaotic, you're completely disoriented, you're becoming undone because you've seen the righteous one. When you and I come up against the holiness of God, it crushes whatever pride we have, any bit of us that thinks we've got this figured out, we begin to see our need. And what our world needs to hear more, it's a courageous witness from a group of people that say, I don't have this figured out. I need the mercy and grace of God. I've seen the righteous one that is Jesus, and I know when I see him and I get a glimpse of his glory, I am not righteous. I am not holy. It reminds me of the prophet Isaiah, his calling. In Isaiah 6, he gets this, there's this vision that the prophet Isaiah gets as he's commissioned to be this prophet, and he, he sees the throne room of God. You can go read it later today, and he gets this vision of just the magnificence, the beauty, the transcendent beauty and the holiness of God, and what does it do? It's like the apostle Paul here. When you run up into the righteous one, when you come into his presence, he says, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts be a courageous witness. Isaiah was a courageous witness. You know what follows his commissioning? There's this great part in chapter six where he's like, here I am, send me. And we all get kind of fired up. We can look at that verse. And then God says to him, okay, and you're gonna go tell people and they're not gonna listen. They're not gonna care. They're gonna be indifferent. They're gonna be hostile what you say, but you go. That's what you're called to do. And I love that part of the commissioning of Isaiah, similar to the commissioning of Paul, which is really for all of us, is this recognition of like, you need to be humbled. You need to know your need. I'm not God's gift to the church. You are not God's gift to the church. The gift of the church is Jesus. He gets to play that role, nobody else. But now God wants to use us in our brokenness. It's why Jesus would talk so harshly, but out of love to the religious leaders of the day. One of the examples of this, Matthew 23, he begins to use this illustration of like, oh, that looks like a nice clean cup, right? And that you might enjoy a drink out of that. And he says, okay, but listen, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside, what are they? They're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside also may be clean. How many of us are guilty of not recognizing our need, just keeping the outside of the cup, keeping the plate clean, but never doing the inward, like the heart work of identifying what drives me? Why am I broken? Why do I respond the way that I do? Let me ask you, because this isn't just a word for the Pharisees and the religious leaders. This is for all of us who are prone to want to project like we have it all together. Have you examined your life? Have I examined my life? Not just once in some time past at some retreat or when we heard this really, you know, great speaker somewhere or whatever it happened to be or just in this kind of mountaintop moment, but in a daily sense, are you examining your life and seeing your need of Jesus? 
And Ananias then says to Paul as he's beginning to come to this reality, as he encounters the righteous one, and now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name. Now, this we look at and we kind of live a couple thousand years after this. And we're like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Like believe, get baptized, all that. This was shocking language. Gentiles got baptized in order to become Jews. A Jew, it was an absolute abomination to ever think about getting baptized because you're, why would you want to convert from something that you already are? And yet what this is communicating is like, no, 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 that's not enough. That was meant you're in this family, you're privileged, blessed, all that, but it's meant to point you. You're meant to be connected with Jesus. And so this conversion needs to happen for you. And what it just did in that moment when Paul was baptized is it leveled, it showed that the playing field is level and the Jew and the Gentile both need the grace of God. That's the story of the Bible. It's not a bunch of people that are, some are good and some are bad. We're all bad, we're all dead. We're all in, the need, in need of the grace of God. And he says, why wait? Identify yourself as part of God's family, with God's people, identify yourself with Christ. So let me ask you, have you identified with Christ? Are you identifying with Christ? Maybe some of you need to do this for the first time. Eric mentioned during the welcome announcements, like in the next month, right, in the next few weeks, we're gonna celebrate for Good Friday and Easter, and part of our Easter celebration is to have a baptism service that'll take place as part of our Easter celebration. Maybe for you, that's what you need to do. Have you identified with Christ and with God's people? Not to earn anything, but it's like, no, like this, I've encountered the risen Lord. And so as the story continues, let's look. If First thing, we need to know our need. We need to grapple with that. But I also think we need to have this confidence in the fact that we've been called. Know your calling. Verses 17 to 22 speak of Paul going back into the temple, it tells us. And he says, he was praying in the temple. I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And Paul's wrestling with this. He's like, I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. He's like, why would they be anti me? And yet the Lord speaks these words to him. He says, go in verse 21, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And it's at that point, verse 22 tells us that the crowd begins to go back to turning on him. They've been caught up. They've been listening to him very carefully. And there's a hush that fell over the audience. But now they're like, no, we can't believe this. They want to stick to their, like, we're the people, we're the special ones, we're the chosen ones. Why would God be doing this other thing? And the apostle Paul realizes that there's this calling that the Lord has put on his life to bear witness to the reality of Jesus. And so to be a courageous witness, I think in our moment, we need to recognize this reality, that there's a courage that comes with it, an obedience, and maybe a way to think about this is you and I, if you're a Christian, you've been saved from Meaning, you've been saved from the wrath of God. The wrath that should have been poured out on you and in me separated us, sent us to hell where we are away from the presence of God forever, all right? That's what hell is, away from the presence of God. That was the reality you and I deserve, that everybody deserves. And yet, Jesus had the wrath poured out on him, not on us, endured hell on your behalf and on my behalf. We are saved from this wrath of God. But... It doesn't stop there. It's not just, okay, cool, back, sit back, cool, sit back, and you get to go to heaven someday, but rather you're saved for, you're saved to something. You're saved to be on this mission. That, so you're saved from the wrath of God, but you're also then saved to be part of his family, to be on mission with King Jesus. 
And so the Apostle Paul hears these words, go. And those words are spoken to you and to me. If you're a follower of Jesus, go. I'm sending you. Do you see that? And to be a courageous witness, I think we've got to come back to this all the time. It's not for some super spiritual elite or the people in the scriptures or maybe people that, you know, maybe you're like, well, no, that's for people that are on a church staff or that kind of thing or work in some parachurch ministry. No, no. If you're a Christian, go. Extroverts, go. Introverts, go. Everybody on the spectrum, go. Might look different, but you and I are called to go. We are a sent people. So the Apostle Paul embraces this. He would write in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, just think of this for a moment, like, how assured he had to be of this calling to endure what he did. So one of the things he writes, a bit of, a bit of again, kind of his resume. He's like, Here, here's what happened to me. Three times I was beaten with rods. For what? For going, for sharing, for bearing witness to Jesus. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. There's a lot of danger happening, right? There'd be a lot of opportunities for fear. He doesn't put on his no fear t-shirt and suddenly do it, but he's like, he's got this courage and this boldness because of who he is in Christ. Danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, And apart from other things, he's like, this isn't a complete list. I'm giving you the snapshot right here. I'm giving you the the cliff note version. I'm giving you kind of just a quick bullet list. He says, there are other things. Plus, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What a pastor's heart that he has. That apparently even while he was being shipwrecked or beaten or didn't have food, there's this low-grade sort of anxiety, this pressure that he felt, and just this concern that he had Are people following Jesus? Are more people meeting Jesus? How's the church doing? Is it thriving? Are the leaders doing what they're called to do? Are they shepherding the people? This weighed on him. It wasn't an easy life, but it was a life filled with joy because he was being obedient to his call. And I think in our day and age, maybe to put it to you this way, I think our culture, if we talk about our cultural moment, sometimes can get on board with, okay, yeah, you know your need, What works for you, that's great. You found Jesus, that's awesome. I'm glad you found something, but don't proselytize. Proselytize means to try and convert. Just keep that to yourself. Don't try and convert me to believe what you believe. And increasingly in our cultural moment, it's viewed not just as like rude or people are indifferent. It's like, no, that's actually wrong. You should not be allowed to proselytize to try and convert me. And yet, it's not playing very fair there because when that dialogue is happening, there are people that are trying to convert you to their worldview. Proselytizing happens all the time. So let's just call it what it is. People are trying to get you to embrace their worldview. You're trying to get them to embrace the reality of Jesus. It's proselytizing. But there can be this pressure. So maybe you're not going to be shipwrecked. Maybe no one's going to throw rocks at you this week. Maybe you're not going to struggle to find a meal, all of those things. But we will run into this. Maybe a way to think about it is everyone kind of views their life like this is my private property, no trespassing. You and your Jesus, you stay over there. That's cool. We can be neighbors. We can be friends. We can be coworkers. We can be family members. But keep it to yourself. I don't want you bringing that Jesus stuff in here. And our calling is to understand, go. To be a courageous witness is to understand that we're called to make disciples. In the book Center Church by Tim Keller, talks about it this way. He says, the moralist 
That's kind of the religious type, believe in proselytizing because we are, quote, right and they are wrong. And he says, such an approach is almost always offensive. So if you're like, oh, is this what Jamie's advocating for? That's not it. That's not what the Bible's advocating for. On the other hand, he says, the relativist or the pragmatist, meaning like, it's all relative, what works for you, all right? It kind of gets into pragmatism. They're very similar. Hey, it's, truth is relative. If that works for you, great. Go find your own truth. Discover that. He says, all right, the relativist pragmatist approach denies the legitimacy of evangelism altogether. Yet the gospel produces a constellation of traits in us. We are compelled to share the gospel out of generosity and love, not guilt. We are freed from the fear of being ridiculed or hurt by others since we have already received the favor of God by grace. Our dealings with others reflect humility because we know we are saved only by grace alone, not because of our superior insight or character. We are hopeful about everyone, even the, quote, hard cases, because we were saved only because of grace. Not because we were people likely to become Christians. We are courteous and careful with people. We don't have to push or coerce them, for it is only God's grace that opens hearts. It's not our eloquence or persistence or even their openness. Together, these traits create not only an excellent neighbor in a multicultural society, but also a winsome evangelist. This is what we're called to. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. The only way you find this peace is in him. So he's like, peace be with you. He's like, know me, know my peace. And as the Father has sent me, who is the ultimate missionary, the ultimate evangelist, the one who had this calling from God? Jesus. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Go and be the church. And so we need to know our story. We need to know our need. We need to know our calling if we're gonna be a courageous witness. But we need to close with this is the reality is we need to see, we need to know and not just know facts about Jesus, not a bunch of Bible trivia about Jesus, but the language of know is intimacy, it's relationship, it's friendship, it's a closeness. Do you know Jesus? Do you know the courage of our Savior? Do you know the courage that it took for Jesus when he was there in the garden? He's praying in the garden of Gethsemane that this cup might pass from him for him to utter the words, not my will, but your will be done. And that he would go to the cross in a few short hours from that moment. Do you know that? This past week, watched a, kind of on our trip, on spring break, got the kids to bed and decided, all right, we were with some family, decided, well, let's watch a movie, all right? Let's watch a documentary, some of you might be familiar with this, that came out recently called Free Solo. Anybody seen this, all right? Um, here's how bad I am. We got done watching this, this movie about rock climbing. I had to go out to the car afterwards. I went down like four or five uh, stone steps on my way back up, tripped and fell. I was like, I'm not made for free soloing, right? Um, <laughs> But here's the story. If you've not seen this, it's a spectacular story. It's got all sorts of things. I mean, we could dialogue for hours about all sorts of things, what drives this person and whatnot. But the guy's name is, is Alex. And Alex is this guy who's been a climber for as long as he can remember. He's just got this, you know, just this insatiable desire for more risk, more adventure. And we watch this, and it's a story, really. Like, how do you overcome and combat fear? Some of you are afraid of heights, right? Now, imagine... This is where he decides to go. He wants to go climb. Uh, this is El Capitan in uh, Yosemite National Park. Now, lots and lots of people do this literally almost every day when the weather permits or people out climbing it, all right? It's a 3,000-foot wall of granite. Even though some of the most expert people, people have done this tons and tons of times, not too long ago, a couple guys died doing this who were expert climbers who had done this countless times before. And in all of those cases, they are clipped in and there's ropes and there are safety mechanisms in place. The idea of a free solo, Alex became one of the world's most famous, well-known, most skilled free solos, meaning I climb without ropes, no harness, 
got his shoes, his clothes, and the little bag with the chalk that he puts on his hands. That's it. And his goal was to climb El Capitan, right? Spoiler alert, he did it, okay? Um, if you didn't know that at this point. But I mean, just look at this. That's him. He's looking up at that, all right? I mean, this is one of the, the shots from it. I mean, just, just like, literally, like, even now, my hands, my feet, I think are just clammy and sweaty. I'm like, I cannot deal with this, right? Like, just watching it, just like, oh my gosh. And even knowing the ending, like, I can't deal with this, all right? Here is another shot of him, you know, um, just this intense. Imagine, you're scaling that wall. There's no rope, right? Apparently, they did put him in an MRI machine, right? And they did these scans, and, like, the part of your brain that registers fear, it doesn't light up at all, all right? So maybe he's the one unique guy in the world that doesn't fear anything. But here he's going, and it's just this, oh, like, what is happening? But one of the interesting insights, one of the things that you find out about him, and as he makes it to the top, there are these words, as he, he calls his girlfriend and he's talking to people, he kept uttering this over and over, I'm delighted. Which seemed a bit of an understatement to be just like, yeah, I just climbed that, right? Like gets to the top. But over and over again, just this big smile on his face, I'm delighted. There was this joy that he was experiencing. There was this joy that he anticipated. If he could make it to the summit, if he could make it to the top, to just sort of revel in that delight. As we think about this, when we think about the courage of Jesus, this is impressive, no doubt, what, what this man Alex was able to accomplish. All right, we could debate the merits if he should have done it or not, but this is a monumental hill to climb, but it doesn't compare to the hill that Jesus climbed, that he was actually willing to scale for you and me, a hill outside of Jerusalem where he was put on a cross. And the reason that he did that, the reason that he could move forward while he was in the garden, praying to the point of like sweat, like drops of blood, and then he could say, not my will, but your will be done, is the writer of Hebrews tells us it was for the joy that was set before him, the absolute delight of glorifying the Father and bringing you and I into the family. Like that's what allowed him to endure this, that the courage of Jesus was tied to joy. And our courage needs to be tied to joy. Joy is greater than fear. When we understand the joy that waits us in, when we're in glad submission and obedience to Jesus, when we know our need, when we come to him daily, when we live on mission with King Jesus, there's this joy. Therefore, it says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for what? For the joy that was set before him, this absolute delight, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, or other translations, that you might not lose heart. To lack courage is when we lose heart. And the fears and anxieties begin to overwhelm us. And there's this call, look to Jesus. Know that there's a joy that's found in following him, not because it eliminates hardship, but because he has actually conquered all real and lasting hardship that one day he's gonna split the sky and he's gonna come back and he's gonna restore everything. That's the story you're part of. The reason the apostle Paul could endure is because he met the risen Jesus. There's hope because he knows that Jesus is alive. Jesus is ruling and reigning. And the hope that existed for the Apostle Paul exists for us here, that we can be the church as we consider him. So I wanna give us a moment. I'm gonna close this in prayer. I'm just gonna give you some time to respond. We're gonna respond in a few different ways. One is just take some time and, and to reflect, to repent maybe of the inordinate fear, maybe your lack of courage, your lack of obedience 
Maybe the Spirit is bringing something to mind. And that you might remember the hill that Jesus climbed in order to get you back, to glorify the Father, the joy that was set before him, that he was glorifying his Father and that he was bringing you in, he was rescuing us. And then we get to rejoice in that reality. We're gonna rejoice, we're gonna sing songs. We're gonna go to the Lord in in prayer. If you need to be prayed for, there'll be members of our prayer team in the back corner. We would encourage you to do that. We're gonna rejoice by giving offerings this morning. If you're a guest, don't feel any obligation to give at all. We're just so glad that you're here. And we're gonna participate in this meal. In just a moment, there'll be leaders on either side of the stage. If you're a follower of Jesus, we invite you to come up and rejoice in what Jesus has done. His life, death, his resurrection. The way we do is take the bread and dip it in the cup and partake and remember let the promises kind of sink in at a deeper level as the Holy Spirit reminds you as he works through this, this meal that you are beloved, that for the joy of bringing you into the family, Jesus endured the cross and ultimately bring glory to his Father. And so hear these words of instruction. 1 Corinthians 11 says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your willingness to send your one and only son on a rescue mission. And Jesus, thank you for your obedience that took you all the way to a bloody Roman cross where you were punished in our place and by your resurrection showed that you had conquered Satan, sin, and death. And we give you praise for that. I pray that that reality would motivate us, that it might give us courage, that we might know that we worship a risen king, that the tomb is empty, and that you have invited us to play our part to point people to the reality of you, to bear witness. And so may we be a people that reflect deeply on our own story, our need of you. May we rejoice in how you meet our needs, that you give us your grace, that we can never exhaust your grace. We don't run to the end of that, that there is always more. There's always more for sinners, for for wayward people, for prodigals to come back home. We thank you that you've called us and invited us to bear witness to the hope that we've found. And so God, I pray now that you would hear our prayers, that you would receive our praise through song, through giving, even through this meal, God, that all of it, God, that it would bring you glory and that we as your people would experience great joy. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.